The first passage today is taken from Philippians 2 verses 5 to 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The second reading is taken from Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. The Great Commission. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always and to the very end of the age. Well, do you have a penguin spirituality? Yes, you heard me right. I've not completely gone off the rails. I'll ask the question again. Do you have a penguin spirituality? Now, I don't mean do you like waddling Antarctic flightless birds. I don't even mean do you like chocolate biscuits because we all know the answer to those questions. It's yes. Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. Penguins are great animals, but there is a feature to their social life that if we mimic it in our spiritual lives, will be unhealthy for us. And it's this, penguins like to huddle. Okay, in order to keep warm in their freezing environments, they gather together in tightly packed groups. Okay, so what this means is that they're able to look each other, look at each other, um, but they have their backs to the world. So the question is, are, do we have a penguin spirituality? Now, many people do a penguin impression when it comes to their spiritual lives. They huddle with those on the inside of their group, uh, which is not a bad thing in and of itself, but it means that they have their backs to, their wor to the world. They don't have their eyes on those outside themselves and their community. They're not outward facing. They're not trying to bring in the outsider. Now, such a spirituality can be used to serve ourselves and our community, but it doesn't have an eye for those who are beyond ourselves. Now, today is the last in our series on resurrection life, and we've seen so far that the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily, physical resurrection that happened in time and space and history, um, gives us confidence of our faith, that it's true. We've seen that it gives us the means to change, and we've seen that it gives us a sure and certain hope for the future. Now, all of that is crucially important stuff, but, you know, it could be easy to take all of that and just think that basically Christianity and Jesus' resurrection just applies to me. 
It's primarily about what it gives me, that it's a means to help me on my spiritual journey or in my spiritual formation. But Jesus has not called his people to just think of themselves. The Christian church exists not just for those um, within its community, but for those beyond, those outside its membership, those beyond its walls, whether they're physical or virtual. And today we're going to see that Jesus is perhaps bigger than we thought he was, but also that this means that we are called to a task that is bigger than ourselves. And that task is to reach out. So just two points this morning. We're going to see the king and we're going to see the commission. Firstly then, the king. So if you turn back in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, we we have this breathtaking passage in scripture that tells us all about who Jesus is and his journey through history. It covers how he came to earth, how he humbled himself, how he even suffered death on a cross. But we're going to pick up the story first at verse 9. If you look at verse 9, we're told that after Jesus' death, God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place. Now, this is a reference to his resurrection and then also after that, his ascension into heaven. And this is emphatic in the original language, the fact that God has exalted him. It's as if he hyper exalted him. He brought him up to the highest place he could possibly be. And this is not a question of location purely, as if we just need to peer our heads up and look up to where he is. It's a question of status. Jesus Christ, the divine human, has been given the name above every other name, it says. That is the highest status imaginable. Jesus Christ, through his resurrection, has been declared king. So the resurrection then is not a kind of final party trick. It's not a miracle alongside other miracles. What it symbolises is Jesus's coronation. It's where he gets the crown. He's declared king overall. And he says, it says in the passage that he's been given the name above every other name. And what is that name? Well, we see in verse 11 that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord. Now, the word Lord in our culture doesn't really mean much. You might think of the word Lord and, and think of lords and ladies, kind of the aristocracy. Um, even when Christians use the term our Lord, it can sound a little bit quaint maybe irrelevant, a bit of an anemic term. But when the Apostle Paul was using this phrase, writing Philippians, he was using a word that had high voltage. It was literally dripping with significance. You see, Paul lived in the Roman Empire and the Caesars of their day maintained a cult of personality through claims to divinity. So they claimed to be gods. So Caesar Augustus, who was the Caesar at the time of Paul, he was considered the son of a god. And you could see inscriptions with that on coins at the time with Augustus's face on it. His rise to the throne and his birthday were considered good news that were to be heralded to the whole empire. He was thought to have brought war to an end and peace to the whole world. And he, like the Caesars after him, carried this title Lord, which is supreme ruler. These lords, these Caesars, they had 
expanded their territory through conquest and bloodshed. And their personality cult was to be celebrated throughout the whole empire. Caesar was lord and, he's, and he was expected to be honoured as such. And yet, here comes Paul who says that Jesus is lord. The implication, of course, being that Augustus is not the top dog. He's not the one who has all the power and authority that he says he does. In fact, there is someone above him that is Jesus. This was a subversive thing to say, and it was also a dangerous thing to say. Talk like this could get you killed in the Roman Empire. But Jesus being Lord extends even beyond party politics. You see, in the Old Testament, the name Lord was given to none other than God himself. Lord was the name by which his people could call him. So when Paul says that God the Father has given Jesus the title Lord, Jesus isn't just some other king, even a greater king than Caesar, which is a big enough claim by itself. No, Paul is telling us that Jesus' lordship is a testimony to his deity. This is a king who not only rules over all, but he is to be worshipped. So Jesus is not just a ruler over a limited territory. He doesn't just have some measure of authority. He's not just king when Christians gather um, at church and they all perceive him as king. He's not just king in a Christian home. He is king of all, whether that is recognised or not. The text says that he is king over everything in heaven, on earth, and, on, and under the earth. That is language that encapsulates all in the universe, all in reality. He is the unique divine Lord over all. And this kingship, Paul says, is one that will be recognised by all people. It says that God the Father has exalted Jesus to the highest place so that, verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now today, Jesus means a variety of things to people. Some think he's a great man. Uh, others think he was a myth. Um, some people only use the name Jesus as a swear word. And yet Paul says that one day, at the end of time, everyone will realise that Jesus is nothing less than their king. They will acknowledge it. Everyone will bow the knee. His lordship will be universally known. Now, all this might sound a little bit intense for 10.30 on a Sunday morning. And maybe you've not thought about Jesus in this way before. So there's a minister in London, Rico Tice. He tells a great story about the time he was invited uh, to a really posh restaurant by uh, a father and a son. He was going to go and have dinner with them. They invited him. He was waiting on the steps of the restaurant for his hosts to arrive and he catches the eye of a guy he thinks is vaguely familiar. He's stood across from him a few, uh, just, just across the way on the steps. And he's kind of trying to figure out who this guy is. He doesn't know, but anyway, he does what a lot of British people would do at this time. He kind of gives him a, a little nod and they stand there awkwardly in silence for five minutes. And then a man comes around the corner. He sees this other guy who Rico's seeing and he says, ah, oh, William, there you are. Come back, we're in the back room. William, Prince William. So Rico had been with William 
for five whole minutes and barely actually noticed him and recognised who he was. He'd lost a chance for a once-in-a-lifetime conversation with royalty. He'd been standing next to his future king, but he hadn't recognised him. You know, perhaps this is where you are with the Lord Jesus. We have all sorts of ideas and pictures of our mind about who Jesus is, don't we? We might imagine him sat on a rock uh, in a field talking and teaching to a multitude of people. We might imagine him with a lamb in his arms. But consider, what if, like Rico with William, we hadn't actually realised who Jesus truly was? We hadn't recognised him for who he is. A king on a throne with authority over all. Now this has wide-ranging implications for what we think about Jesus. If it is true that he is this king, that he is Lord, it means that Jesus is not just one name among many. He's not merely a good teacher or a model of socialism. He doesn't share a peer group with Gandhi and the Dalai Lama as if they're all on the same level. He won't stand amongst other religious claims as one of many options. His name, remember, is above every name. And that is how God the Father himself has designed it. He has exalted Jesus. He is most pleased when Jesus is honoured above every other name. And so if this passage is true, then Jesus' authority is absolute. The Dutch Prime Minister in 1901, Abraham Kuyper, also a theologian, famously said this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's all his. It's all under his authority. And this is where it starts to get a little bit close for comfort, doesn't it? Because if this is true, then he is my king, but he is also your king. Anyone living in this universe is living under his jurisdiction. He's Lord of all, and we are therefore accountable to him. Now, this could be really scary, couldn't it? A few years ago, I used to work in an office. I was in this office for four years. And over the time that I was in this office, I had three line managers, which means that I changed. I had a management change uh, twice. And you'll you'll know that if you've been in a job for a while, um, or if you're about to enter a new job, that it really matters to you what your manager is going to be like. When, when you get a management shift, you sort of think, oh, well, I hope they're going to be a good one. I hope they're going to lead me well, um, because it's within their power to either be a joy to work for or be a nightmare who can ruin your whole experience of the job. And it's kind of same here to the nth degree, isn't it, with the Lord Jesus? The amount of power that this passage says Jesus has is frightening to be Lord over all. And we are so aware of abuses of power with our leaders, aren't we? You know, we can't even trust our leaders to fill in an expense form with integrity. What about someone with this amount of power? It could be frightening. So when we read that Jesus is Lord here, we desperately want to know that Jesus is good, okay? That he's just, that he has integrity, that he'll use his power for the good of others and not just for his own gain. Well, we can know that. We don't have to worry and this passage shows us why and the key is not so much in Jesus's exaltation his way up but in his prior journey down 
So look down with me at verses five to six. They show that Jesus's life is the story, not of a man who became God, but of the God who became man. Jesus is the divine son of God, existing in perfect blessedness for all eternity with his father. And yet he says he came down. He took on humanity. It says, verse seven, he was made in human likeness. God became one of us. Born in a lowly state, he lived a life of relative poverty. And verse eight, he died a horrendous death on a cross, the death of a slave, the death of utmost shame. He came from glory to the messiness of earth. He came down. Now, if he came from glory, that means that when Jesus was then lifted up, in a real sense, he wasn't gaining anything new. Okay? After all, as we've said, he's the eternal son of God. In reality, there's actually no question about whether he rules or not. I mean, he is divine. He created the world. Of course, he rules. So after he came down, it's no surprise that he would then be lifted up. The new part is that it's his divine human nature that he, in which he is exalted. So the one who was betrayed, the one who was crucified, is now shown to be Lord of all. But being king is no new thing in and of itself for Jesus. So this begs a question then, doesn't it? Why would he go through all of this? Why become a human face poverty and injustice and a horrible death before being raised again, you know, if he had the kingship anyway? Well, because he did it for us. Through his death, he would restore a lost world. He would give people the chance to have their sins forgiven, to have the corruption in their hearts dealt with. It was through his death that he took the penalty for their sins in their place so that they could have true life. And this was entirely self-giving, entirely. The magisterial reformer, John Calvin, when commenting on this passage in Philippians, he said this, Christ did not seek or receive anything for himself, but everything for us. For what need had he, who was already the equal of the father, of a new exaltation? Well, he didn't, did he? That's the point. Jesus had come down, but he was raised up to what he already, already had. And so the wonder of Jesus' death and resurrection is not so much that he was exalted, in a sense that's a given, but it's that he first came down. And what this means is Jesus is not like a greasy politician who's willing to do whatever he can to grasp at power and climb the ladder. Rather, he's self-giving. He pours himself out for the sake of others. That's the very definition of love, isn't it? As Calvin said, Christ did not seek or receive anything for himself, but everything for us. Now, if that's true, if he is the one with all power and authority, if he is the one who is Lord and King over all, then we don't have to worry that he's going to use his power abusively. We don't have to be afraid. And that's why Christians throughout history and all over the world have bowed before Jesus willingly and gladly confessed him as Lord of all. Jesus is the king. Well, that's the king. Secondly, then, the commission. Well, fair enough. Jesus may be Lord, as the passage says, but what does that have to do with us 
reaching out. Well, according to Jesus himself, everything. It means everything. And he explicitly makes that connection in our second reading from Matthew 28. So if you quickly want to turn over to Matthew 28. So this chapter is at the end of Matthew's gospel. So the events in it take place after Jesus has been raised from the dead. And Jesus appears to his disciples and he basically tells them the same things that, he's, that we've already learned from Philippians. He says, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's the king. And then what's the implication? Verse 19, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So the logic in Jesus's mind is crystal clear. Jesus is king, so everyone should know. So Jesus' commission to his disciples is go and tell everyone. Okay, make disciples, baptize them, teach them what I've commanded. This is the job of all disciples, of all followers of Jesus. Multiplication of this movement. See, Christianity is an outward looking faith. Sometimes Christians can be thought of as holier than thou. People who like to keep in their own segregated groups, maybe look down their noses at outsiders, separate themselves off from the wider world. And sadly, that can be true. Many of us are very much tempted to embrace penguin Christianity. In many ways, it's easier. But if we truly believe in the resurrection, then that should never be the case. If Jesus is risen, then he's king. And if he's king, then everybody needs to know. We should reach out to others. As Jesus says, therefore, go. We are not just to think of ourselves. Rather, we have news to proclaim. And so the resurrection propels us outward to reach others. And who exactly is it that needs to hear? Well, everyone. That's what Jesus says. Everyone, all types of people, all nations, disciples are to be made from. If Jesus is king, then all people need to hear about him. Now, one of the awesome things about the global Christian church is just how international and diverse it is. You know, sometimes Christianity is caricatured as a white man's religion, kind of focused all around uh, Europe and America, but that simply isn't true. You know, Christianity started off actually as a Jewish movement in the Middle East. And yes, over time, the center of gravity kind of shifted to Europe, but there have always been historic Christian communities in places like Ethiopia or in Syria. But even now, the center of gravity is shifting again away from Europe to other parts of the world, Latin America, East Asia, Africa. Christianity is booming over there. You see, this morning, more Christian believers will attend church, even if it's online, in China than in the whole of Europe. And according to Yale professor Stephen Carter, he says around the world, the people most likely to be Christians are women of colour. And he sort of warns people who would like to take the mickey out of Christians and poke fun of them. Maybe you're not insulting who you think you're insulting. You see, diversity is something the church has in bucket loads. And that's a glorious thing. You know, even at Grace Church, we're delighted that we have people from all sorts of backgrounds and ethnicities and countries. And you saw a snapshot of that with the welcome video at the beginning. And it's right, isn't it? It's right that Christianity is global because Jesus is a global king. He's king overall. But you know what? 
The only reason we have this glorious diversity in the church is because the first Christians and Christians since have taken this chapter seriously. They've read Matthew 28, they've seen Jesus's commission and they've taken it upon themselves to share the news about Jesus far and wide. And that's the reason that we know and it's the reason that we have believed. Christianity did not start in England. It's because of previous generations of Christians who came to our continent, came to our land, came to our city and share the good news with us that we've had the opportunity to receive and respond to Jesus ourselves. We have benefited from that commission that Jesus gave his disciples. And so this imperative to reach out still exists today. And we are responsible for our little part in what that, in, in that commission and what it looks like. Okay, we've, we see that we, we should be making disciples of all nations, but what, what should our motivation be? What is the thing that's gonna drive us to tell others about this glorious king? Well, often in these sorts of conversations, the emphasis is on the good of those who hear. And that's right, isn't it? We, we long for our friends and for our neighbours to hear about Jesus because we, we think that's what's best for them. And it is what's best for them to know Jesus, the king of all, the one who can offer forgiveness of sins, the, the author of true life, uh, the only person by which we can gain true life and uh, hope um, and a, a, an assured glorious future for all eternity. He's, he's the only source of that life. Of course, we want people um, to partake of that. And we know that not to know him would be a tragedy. If we turn away from the author of life, what, what else is there but death? And we don't want that for anybody. So yes, we tell people the good news because we think it's what's good for them. And if there's anybody, you know, for those of you who are listening in, who perhaps uh, would not call themselves Christians or tr still trying to find out about Jesus, we think that this is good news for you. And we'd urge you, find out more about Jesus. Um, this is something that could change your life and have infinite and eternal value for you. So yes, we care about other people. And that is a big motivator for sharing the good news. We're not like salesmen trying to get a bonus from God for a high number of converts. We speak of Jesus out of compassion and love for others. But... If Jesus is the resurrected king, if he is Lord of all, then perhaps there's another driver that will motivate us to go and tell others about him. One even bigger than love for others. And that's love for Jesus himself. Now, when Barack Obama was considering his run for presidency, his wife, Michelle, was reluctant at first. She knew the toll that it would take on family life. She wasn't quite keen. It took her a while to get convinced. And Barack even had to get her brother involved to try and convince her to go for it with him. Now, eventually, after a while, Michelle kind of decided that, yes, Barack should go for this presidency. He should go through all the, um, all the process um, and all the time it would take to get to this, this great position if he could. And she said this in an interview, I had to think of whether I would want to be responsible for not having somebody like Barack, someone with his level of intellect, his honesty, his compassion, his values. Would I want to be the one who stood in the way of this person potentially running the country? 
Now fast forward a few years to his campaign for his second term, and Michelle was a key asset in that campaign run. run. So she ended up being frontline and center, giving a keynote speech at the Democratic National Convention. And it was well received, it was a significant speech. And commenting on it later, she, she spoke about that speech and she said that it was just a chance to talk about the man that I love, why I love him and our values. Now, regardless of what you think about Barack Obama and his politics, that shows us something powerful, doesn't it? Michelle spoke about her husband, yes, for, for the good of the people, but perhaps more primarily because she loved him and she thought she, she thought her husband was worthy of the White House, that he was worthy of American votes. And so in a much more profound sense, love for Jesus will drive us to tell others about him, to make him known, because he's worthy. And you know this, don't you, if you're a Christian? You've benefited from Christ's love to you. You know, you've received in overflowing measure his love. You know that the infinite came down, took on humanity, suffered a horrendous death for you. You've seen him, as it were, on the cross with nails in his hands, a crown of thorns on his head, spear in his side. You've seen him experiencing horror in your place. You've seen that it was driven from love, that we were naturally lost like sheep away from the fold. And yet Jesus came out and sought us and through his death and resurrection personally brought us back into his fold. His uh, union with us, he's bound himself to us for our good. He had compassion on us. He sought us. We know that through whatever circumstances we came to faith in our life, whether that was the faithful witness of our parents, whether that was a friend telling us about Jesus, that Jesus personally came after us and saved us. We know that. We've received that. Now, when you grasp all that Jesus has done for you, his suffering, his cross, um, your redemption, which he has bought, it'll make you love him, won't it? When, you know, when, when we grasp that, it'll make us love him. And it'll also mean that we want to tell others because it won't just be enough that Jesus is known by me or even by my family or by church. He's so great and we've seen that, haven't we? As, as king overall, he's so great. He should be known by everybody. Everyone should give him um, honor. He deserves it, it's his due and he's worthy of it. I've used this quotation before, but I'm gonna use it again because I think it's so good. Um, the 17th century Scottish pastor, Samuel Rutherford, he captures this sentiment beautifully in a letter he wrote to a friend. He said this, Oh, if I could invite 10,000 times 10,000 people to flock to the Lord Jesus and come and take their fill of his love. Oh, pity forevermore that there should be such a one as Christ Jesus, so boundless, so bottomless, and so incomparable in excellency, and so few take him. Do you see Rutherford's point? You know, Jesus is glorious. So much so, you know, we should be grieved. We will be grieved when he doesn't receive the honour that's due him by others. It will make us sad to see that people don't even know about Jesus, let alone that they haven't responded to him. He's everyone's king. And so everyone must hear of him, whether that's the working classes in Fallowfield or jungle tribes in Peru. 
He's king of all. And so the church, the Christian church must tell the world, not just for their good, but for his glory. You see, this commission that Jesus gives us is to be on all of our hearts. We're to reach out to all kinds of people, not just those who look like us or speak like us or enjoy the same hobbies that we do. This good news is meant to cross boundaries. It's meant to be radical. And as Christians, that's something that we should think about seriously. Okay, well, as we finish then, what does this, what does this mean for you and me practically? Particularly at this strange time of lockdown. Now, the Great Commission is very obviously affected by lockdown. People cannot travel in the way they could. We have to socially distance. But I do wonder whether the barrier to the Great Commission through lockdown is actually mental as much as it is physical. You see, lockdown could be a time when penguin Christianity thrives. Because think about it, our worlds have shrunk, haven't they? We're spending the majority of our time in our homes with people that we live with. We are, for the most part, many of us not at work, so we're not rubbing shoulders um, with our colleagues or other people in the same that we same way we would normally. And also, as well as those particular circumstances, lockdown is causing struggles for us. We find it hard, understandably so. And so, in the midst of all these factors, it's so tempting for us to just think about ourselves and not consider those on the outside, huddled together, backs to the world. And the irony, of course, is that actually, this virus that is spreading throughout the whole world may be cause for more spiritual openness than we had before. Perhaps there's greater opportunity and fruit that could be gained from sharing the good news of Jesus with others. And yet our temptation is to isolate and look inward. So Christian friend, I, I understand that this is a temptation for all of us. So what, what steps could you take to move forward in the Great Commission? Even small little steps. Even in lockdown, what could you be doing to reach out? Well, these are a few suggestions. I think firstly, all of us should pray, shouldn't we? I think if we're honest, none of us feels the sense of passion for God's honour and for Jesus's fame that we should have. Our hearts can be quite dull. Um, we're, we're not kind of fired up um, by Jesus's kingship and what he deserves. So maybe that's something to pray through this week and in the weeks ahead, that we would be captured um, by uh, a passion to see Jesus made famous, for him to be known by all people, that he would be glorified. That's something we should pray for, I think. And then after we're, as we're praying for these things, maybe we can look for opportunities, maybe just little opportunities to reach out. Perhaps it's getting in touch with an old friend um, see how they're doing, even if you've not been in contact with them for a while. Maybe it's looking for little ways in conversation to share about the hope you have as a Christian, even in this dark time, knowing that Jesus is King just gives us so much kind of hope, doesn't it, for the future. We don't have to worry about our circumstances. Is there a way we can even just mention that in a kind of casual, non-awkward way? Something to think about. Maybe one way you can uh, step forward in, in this is to uh, point people to live stream services um, give people the opportunity to engage with Christian content 
and then even if you're brave enough get them to ask you questions about it afterwards you know whatever we're doing we should just think about little steps so that we don't huddle in and look at ourselves but we have an eye for the outsider because Jesus is worthy Jesus is worthy so these are little steps we can take to fulfill um, in small part the, little, the great commission that Jesus has given us Look, whatever the circumstances of our lives, Jesus is still king. He's king over all. And because we believe in a resurrected Jesus, we believe in a Lord Jesus. And he's worthy to receive honour and glory from every creature on earth, on, on, in the world, every person. And so out of love, we should tell them. We should tell them. So let's not be penguin Christians. Let's raise our gaze. Let's look outwards and see if we can share um, the good news, even in little ways, with a lost world. For their sake, yes, but also for Jesus' glory. Let's pray, shall we? Gracious God, we are humbled as we see the greatness of the Lord Jesus in these passages. We want to acknowledge his kingship. Lord, we want to willingly bow and confess that he is Lord. That is a glorious thing. And it's a wonder to us, Lord, that you as Father would be the one to exalt him. You are delighted in him being king over all and exalted and giving him that name which is above every other name. Lord, that is a glorious thing and we want to worship you and worship your son for that. Lord God, please give us a passion for the Lord Jesus in a way that we haven't had it before. Lord, give us a, a holy and righteous zeal for his name. May we be willing to step outside ourselves and our comfort zones in order to share the good news, even in little ways, and fulfill this great commission that the Lord Jesus has given us. And Lord, again, if we're still trying to figure out where we are with these things and, and the Christian faith and, and who you are and who Jesus is, I pray that by your spirit, you would give us clarity of vision, even this morning. Help us in all that we do, Lord, to honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.